All right. So today is going to start a two-part mini-series on uh, Colossians 1. We're going to hit 15 through 17 today, so you can go ahead and turn into your Bibles there, and then we're going to finish uh, 18 through 23 next week, and it's going to be called Envisioning the Invisible. So have you ever wondered what the wind looks like? Now, what's, what's it really look like? Uh, it's relatively a rel- relatively common question. We can see some of the results from it. See that dandelion there, right? We love those uh, dandelions, right, Mr. Jim? I'm sure you, you really love those. Um, but we can never actually see the wind. How much more amazing would it be to see God, right? You know, we see him, him work. We see what he's done. But, but, but no, nobody had ever seen God. And the, everybody wanted to see God. And we can see that, that he presented himself a few different times in different manifestations. But nobody had actually ever seen God. God until John 1.18, right? So no one had ever seen God until Jesus came as human flesh, 100% God and 100% man. The great I am, the creator of the universe, the creator of the heavens and the earth, came and revealed the invisible to mortal man. We were able to see God in the flesh, the true image of God, right? So today we're going to be discussing how we can envision the invisible. So join me as we read verses 15 through 17 together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so excited for us to, to go through these three verses. Uh, I really think we could have three specific sermons on each one of these verses individually. There's so much theology, so much about you, uh, so much Christology, the study of you uh, in these verses, and we thank you that you have loved us enough to give us your word. God, give us a love for your word. Open up our minds and our hearts to receive this teaching. Uh, there's going to be a lot of, of depth here, and so I pray that, that all the other distractions in our lives, all the things that we're worried about, we're thinking about, God, help us to lay them at the foot of your cross and to be able to truly open up our minds and our hearts to understand this. May, may your Holy Spirit illuminate or shine light, as we talked about before, on your word for us, God. Help us to understand it and help us to, to love it, God. We love you, praise you, and thank you. Amen. So our first point is we can envision the invisible through the firstborn. We can envision the invisible through the firstborn. I'm going to read verse 15 again here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Christ is the image of the invisible God. So what exactly is an image? An image is something we can see, right? There's an image right there. I think you can see the image there. So we talked about God had revealed himself to Israel multiple times. We see he was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. We see in Exodus uh, 13, 22, we see that he showed part of his glory to Moses as he passed by, and he kind of covered uh, up Moses for the most part. So we just saw a little part, just revealed a very small part of himself. Uh, we see he also showed himself to Moses in what? A burning bush, right? And, the, and it wasn't consumed. But none of these were the image of God, right? These were manifestations that God presented himself in, but nobody would have called those the image of God, right? But here we go, and th- but there were a way that, that, that he revealed himself to man at the time. 
So the Greek word for image here is ikon, which means image or a likeness. Likeness is a really good way to put that. And we see that man was made in the image of God, albeit imperfect, uh, imperfectly, right? So man is marred by, by sin. And even though we can, we can make decisions, we can understand good and evil, we can, there's a lot of things like that. We're made in the image of God in our capacities, but we are very far from perfect. Jesus, however, is the complete revelation of God, the, the complete image, the likeness of God, because Jesus is God. He's not just like God. He is God. And how amazing is that? And how important is that belief that Jesus is the complete revelation, that he is the Godhead three in one, that he is a member of the, the Trinity? How important is that? Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 makes a strong case for how important this is. So join me here. In case the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the gospel, what does it say after this? Who is the image of God. So the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is God. God made flesh that his sacrificial atonement on the cross covered your sins, that he was able to live that perfect sinless life that you couldn't. So Paul says that the little g God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers for seeing Christ as who he is. This was no better seen than in the, the fourth century presbyter named Arius. If anybody's heard of Arius, uh, he, he had a, a strong uh, disdain for the Trinity. Uh, he, he, he was really bothered because some people were falsely teaching that Christianity was a polytheistic religion, meaning people were saying, oh, those Christians, they worship three gods. They didn't understand the Trinity, that, that God is one God and three persons. And so they would say, oh, oh, they're polytheistic. They might as well be like Egyptian pagans or, or whatever. You know, they don't believe in one God. And so in an effort to try to prevent that thinking, he came up with his own idea. He came up with his own idea, so, which was actually a worse heresy, and we'll go into that in a minute. But I want us to learn from Arius here that he sees what is being said to be a problem. And so he, he does this principle we call overcorrection. And so when we see something that we need to explain or we want to work through, it's really easy to overcorrect. And we see this in many aspects of people's lives. They, they, they maybe need to lose a couple of pounds, and so they overcorrect, and it becomes their idol. And all they think about is diet and exercise. Uh, they're counting calories all day. They're not reading their Bible because they're so busy on their physical body. Versus the other overcorrection, the person that maybe is there just says, oh, whatever, <laughs> you know, eat, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, so we, can, we have a tendency to overcorrect. We see this in theology. Uh, we can go so far into God's sovereignty, and he is absolutely sovereign, that we take out man's responsibility. That, oh, it doesn't really matter what I do because God is fully sovereign, so I can just do whatever I want to. Or we go so far into free will. Like, it's all on you. It's all, you know, if you share the gospel and they don't become a Christian, it's because you didn't do it right. That's what, it, well, that's not true either, right? God is fully sovereign. He draws men to himself. Without him drawing, no one can be saved. But yet he uses us to preach the word. If no one has preached the word, then no one has come, right? Yet you have to hear that word from someone else. So we have this tendency as humans to overcorrect. And here is what Arius did, as we see up here. His overcorrection said that Jesus is not self-existent, and he was created as the perfect creature. Then he says Jesus has no communion or even direct knowledge of the Father. So what he says is, you know, Jesus, yeah, he was a perfect creature, but he wasn't really God. And he pretty much went right at the doctrine of the Trinity, which is very clearly 
portrayed in Scripture. Brother Jim did a great lesson on that, uh, lesson three, and we just reviewed some of it today at, during, during our, our growth group. So you wonder, you're like, well, you know, is this still around? Like, do people still use this idea? And absolutely. The Jehovah's Witnesses cult actually would agree with both of those statements. That is a huge difference between Jehovah's Witnesses and Christians, is that they do not believe that Jesus is Christ, that he is God made flesh. And they are condemned by the words we just read. If we go back a slide in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, they don't believe that he is the true, complete revelation and image of God. The little g God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds so that they don't see that Christ is the true image of God. And it should be noted that Arius' teachings were condemned by the council of Nicaea in 325. And they were ruled to be a her heresy. So my friends, a proper understanding of the person of Christ, who Christ is, that he is 100% God, 100% man, is vital, is paramount to a saving faith. One cannot be saved apart from true belief in that Jesus is who he is, who he says he is, and who he is revealed to be in the word of God. We must know who our Savior is. He is the image of the invisible God. Next we see he, he is the firstborn of all creation. And Arius really like that word there too and really try to grab a hold of that that's why he called jesus the perfect cre creature the perfect creation was because this word firstborn and, and that's the, that's one of those things he he grabbed yeah we see in john 1 1 it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and then what the word was god that is talking about jesus christ i don't know how john could be any more clear that jesus is god other than saying that he is god right there right so what exactly does this term for firstborn mean? Like, you know, it does sound, I, I, get, I get how people can maybe misunderstand that at times. And this word is proto, pro, prototokos, uh, which can mean firstborn or more, more accurately in the New Testament, preeminent, which is actually the, the best translation of this term. Preeminent, which means above all. We all agree Christ is above all, right? Uh, to take precedence, nobody takes precedence over Christ. To have a position of primacy, he is above all. Uh, and he existed before. That's what, that's what John 1, 1 just said. He has been before. And this Greek word is actually listed nine times in the New Testament. And just to kind of know that I'm not just trying to twist this around, eight of the nine times are this definition. Only one is actually meaning literally born first. And that's actually speaking about Jesus in Luke 2, 7, about his birth. But the other eight times it's used, it is preeminent or above all. So this is the most common Word. We see this in Revelation 1.5 as just one example. We see that Jesus Christ is called, what, the firstborn of the? Now, did it, was, was there anybody that was resurrected before Jesus? Yeah, Jesus resurrected people, right? I mean, Lazarus. So we know that this doesn't literally mean he is the firstborn of the dead. It means he's the preeminent from the dead. It means that without his resurrection, no other resurrections happen. It means we have no hope of eternal life if it wasn't for the power of Jesus Christ. Christ. He is the preeminent. His res resurrection takes precedence above all others. His matters more than all others. He matters more than all others. We actually will see the same concept, and these words actually used, if we go ahead just to verse 18 in your Bibles there, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So that same idea there. So as we can see, Paul makes it clear when he says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He is fully man 
and fully God. And he is 100% God. He's the complete revelation of God. And so knowing Jesus is knowing who? God. You want to see, Je- see God? You see Jesus. You want to see the Holy Spirit? You see Jesus. So we see envisioning, envisioning Jesus is seeing the invisible God. So we've seen here first, we can see, we, we can see the invisible through the firstborn, the preeminent Savior, Jesus Christ. And next, we see that we can envision the invisible through the founder. Through the founder. This is point two. We can envision the invisible through the founder. Colossians 1, 16, I'm going to read it again. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So now that we've seen about the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, now we see him as creator. He is the foundation. So for by him, meaning by Christ, all things were created. So what exactly does Paul mean all things here? He means all things, everything, right? So Christ created all things in heaven and on earth. We see both visible, obviously the earth and the universe that we see, and invisible, we see spiritual beings, places we don't understand. So let's just break that down a little bit about what Christ created. And how, so let's just kind of take what, what Paul's saying here. So first we see that he created the earth and everything on it. We can see, right? We can see the earth, everything that we can see. And then he also created the heavens, which likely refers to heaven proper, which is the dwelling place of God, but also the heavens that we see above us. We'll see the scriptures will talk about the sun, moon, and stars, and, and space as, as the heavens. Next, we see that he created everything that is visible, everything that we see on earth. And again, like what we see in the heavens, but also on the earth. And this vis- vi- the, the creation that we see out there screams that there is a creator, you know, I mean, it just makes sense that if you see a creation, that there needs to be a creator. Just like we see this building, we wouldn't just say it just happened, right? We wouldn't say that this building doesn't have a creator or an architect or a builder. We would say, yes, yeah, somebody, that, no, it just happened. You know, one day we just came upon this building and we just believed that it was just here. No, we would say it has a creator. Somebody came up with it in their head. Some other people put those, those plans on a diagram as an architect and other people came in and they laid the bricks and they did it and in an orderly fashion to make a building, right? Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. It means we have no excuse. We see that there is a creation. Logically, we know deep down, even those of us who may be atheists that, or maybe agnostics, or whatever, we know deep down there has to be a creator. There can't be a creation without a creator, just like we wouldn't believe a building just appeared. We can't really believe that this all just appeared in any logical sense of the word. Getting back to verse 16. Next we get to a, a, a more difficult understanding group of words. So he created all things that are invisible. We talked about how that includes heaven proper, the throne of God, that kind of, okay, well, that's, that's not as much of a head scratcher. We know he created heaven. We hear about the new heavens and new earth. We, we, get, we get that somewhat. It's still way beyond our understanding. Then we get this next grouping of words, and he says he created all thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. So these four terms refer to spiritual beings. We're talking about angels, demons. So if we we look in in Revelation, watch all demons are fallen angels, and we see that in Revelation 12, 4, and 9 here. Uh, Just kind of, I think, can you see the bolded? Maybe not, it doesn't show up as much. So his tail swept down a third of the stars, 
there in verse 4. And if you go to 9, the, we see Satan. He, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So we see Satan, along with a third of the angels, fell, and that, th- those are the demons, uh, Satan and his demons who roam the earth and are tempting men and women every day that, that, that are trying to make our lives miserable, right? So we see that these four terms are given, and they likely are areas of spiritual authority of angels. Most theologians would take that. In order to go into that in great detail, we'd have a whole other sermon. So I'm not really going to go into that way. But what Paul's really trying to say here is that angels or demons, Satan or whatever other spiritual being you want to, you know, we, 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 we could talk about, they were all beneath Jesus Christ. So none of them have power over Jesus Christ. They are all created, which means they are inferior. Anything that you create would be inf- inferior. It wouldn't be fully as, as big as you are, right? I mean, if you design something, it may be able to do some great things, but there's a lot of things it can't do because it just has a part, right? It, it just has some of what you programmed it to do. So it's, it's all beneath Jesus Christ. That is the real teaching that Paul is trying to say, that Christ is the complete revelation of God, that he is above all other spiritual beings, whether angels, whether demons, whether Satan, whoever, And the author of Hebrews echoes this when he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all uh, God's angels worship him, right? He is above the angels. And if you read Hebrews chapter 1, the the author is really trying to nail down Jesus is greater than the angels. Don't be worshiping angels or demons. Don't be worshiping any other spiritual being. Jesus is greater, right? And then we kind of come to some, some great... Uh, prepositions. Uh, I don't know if anybody is a big English person here, but, but we come to some really cool prepositions. I am not an English person, but at least I do know what a preposition is, so I'm happy about that. So Jesus is the uncreated creator, and we see f- three different great prepositions here. And uh, can you go over one more slide? We see for what? By him? And then what, what is the next one we see at the bottom here? We're created through him and for him. Somebody knows their prepositions. I'm impressed. That's good. So, so let's kind of take a look at, at all three of these and kind of go through them. So for the first statement is by him. It means that creation was God's idea. It was Jesus' idea. Nobody else gave him any input on this. It was completely from Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he did it from the ground up. He didn't use anybody else's help. He didn't have to take, you know, a little bit of wood from this place and, and a little bit of metal from this place. No, no, he spoke it into existence. It was all him. And that was because there was nothing before God. In the beginning was God, right? And as the Trinity. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O, o uh, Lord and, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So all things were created by the will of God. It's all his idea and handiwork. And Jesus is God. And thus, through Jesus, all things were created by him. The second statement is through him. So through him, we see, again, if we go back to John 1, 1, 1 through 3, I'll read it for you here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word, or the, the word was God, and the word, well, let's see, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning. And then verse 3, it says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So everything that you see was made through Christ. It was made through his power. There's nothing that you see that wasn't made through Christ. There's nothing that Christ sees and says, oh, I wonder where that came from, right? It, it all is from him. It was all through him. 
And finally, this, this, this best word here is for him. So all creation, everything that you see, from the mountains to the sun to the moon and the stars, space, the, the infinite of the, uh, just the, the infinite expanse of the universe, it all is for the glory of God. It is all to scream his glory. It all exists for his glory. Uh, as the old Westminster Catechism said, what is the chief end of man? A man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what life is all about. You want to know what the meaning of life is? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's not to do what you want to do. It's not to do what your mom wants you to do. It's not to do what anybody else wants you to do or your dad or anybody else. It's to do what God wants you to do and to glorify him with it. As we discussed, there are many who are in rebellion to Christ's rule and reign today. But we also discussed, I think last week, Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that one day, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I pray that each of us have made that profession, that we've personally humbled ourselves before our great creator because he not only created us, he redeemed us from the power of sin. He created us with the ability to choose good or choose evil. And we chose evil. And so not only did he create us, but he also redeemed us. He bought us back from sin. We sold ourselves as slaves to sin because we wanted to do what we wanted to do. Adam fell, right? But yet he has forgiven us. He died that that substitutionary death on the cross for us. He took the nails in his wrists and his, his ankles, his feet. He took the crown of thorns. He died a horrendous death after living a perfect life that we couldn't live. And now through faith in him, repentance of our sin, turning to him, we can have salvation. How amazing is that? Praise God for his free gift of salvation. So pr friends, I pray that you envision, envisioned the invisible through our true founder. He is the founder of creation and the founder of salvation. How great is that? And finally, we see in the third point here, we can envision the invisible through the fastener. We can envision the invisible through the fastener. Verse 17 here. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So for those of you who may not be really mechanically savvy, a fastener is something that holds something else together. Uh, so, so it holds things together. It holds things together. And we are told in verse 17 that Jesus is the great fastener. It says, in him all things hold together. He is, he is the glue of creation, the force of creation. And before we get into that, I want us to, to see the beginning here. It says that he is also before all things. And we kind of mentioned this a little bit before. There is nothing before Jesus Christ. And as Brother Jim said this morning, too, this speaks to his eternality. He is he has always existed. In the beginning, God, meaning in the beginning, Jesus. And it may be even more clearly stated before the beginning, Jesus. He, he has always been and he always will be. He is not limited by time or space. And this is a pretty difficult concept for many who are atheists and agnostics. And when you go to try to share the gospel, somebody who claims to be an atheist especially, they'll, they'll really struggle with this whole preeminence and preexistence and eternality of, of Jesus, of God. But for the atheists, they have to answer the same question that we have to answer. Kind of bear with me here a little bit. For the atheist, the, the question is this. For the atheist, the question is, what was before the Big Bang? So obviously, as Christians, the Big Bang is completely contrary to Genesis chapter 1, and we as a church stand adamantly opposed to any idea that the Big Bang is what created 
the world. Uh, Genesis 1 says that God spoke the earth into existence, spoke the world, all of existence, in an orderly fashion in six consecutive days. It can't be any more clear that there is evening and there is morning. The word yom is a 24-hour period. can't be any more clear that God created the, the earth in an orderly fashion, not an explosion. But what is their answer when this question is raised? What was before the Big Bang? And they're going to say matter has always existed. Well, matter has always, what was before matter? Matter. You know, so they, have to, they still have to answer the same very difficult question that we have to answer. What was before God? What was before matter? And, and I would say, so their faith, and yes, I just used that word, and atheists will get really mad at you if you say they have faith, but they do have faith because faith is believing in something you can't see. But for us, we have a faith that, is on a, a fa- that has a foundation to it. We have a faith that doesn't have a foundation by a guy that lives in the 1800s named Charles Darwin. We have faith in a guy that has lived forever. So I'm going to go with the guy that's lived forever and that created everything. Is where my faith is. So most atheists worship the little g-gods of, of theories, right, and of men, such as Charles Darwin. And it, th- their faith rests on the idea that matter has existed for all eternity. And this, I could preach for a long time on this. I have a very big passion because I am a biology major, a doctor. Like, that's kind of my thing is to kind of see these things and, and kind of poke holes in these bad theories. But the, the biggest glaring issue I have with matter has always existed, and it was in this extremely labile form that created an explosion that everything was made. The, the issue that I have is how could all of the matter that the whole cosmos, like everything that we see, all the stars, all the moon, it's all in this one big bubble, or whatever you want to call it. How could it exist in an an inert or non-reactive state for all eternity? So non-reactive state. So if I took a thing of gasoline and I set it right here, and obviously gasoline has a lot of power behind it, right? It can power our cars. It could catch on fire and blow up the building, right? I mean, gasoline has a ton of power, but, but it just sits there, and it just has stayed in this extremely inert thing for all eternity until a boom. What boomed it? What caused, what banged the big bang? There has to be an external force. If I set that, that gas right there, that gasoline, and no one ever touches it, and it sits there for all eternity, no outside force, no gravity, nothing like that, nothing ever touches it, it will never explode. Nothing will ever happen. So what banged the big bang? They have to answer that question. And the answer is nothing because it's not real. It can't happen. It doesn't make any sense. In observational science, it doesn't make any sense of what that is. And even more so, how many explosions have you seen that line up bricks perfectly and the mortar is nice and smoothed out? Have you ever seen an explosion create order? No, I mean, actually, if you look at the, the laws of thermodynamics, all explosions actually make more entropy or disorder. Every reaction actually releases energy and makes things worse. So, we be, so, so an atheist would have to believe that an explosion of this collection of matter that exploded all of a sudden created this. What? Like that doesn't, in, in any observational science, if, if we would go out and we blow up each one of these cars individually, don't do it, but if we would, they, none of them would look better at the end. I can promise you that. And if you look at crash tests, Ne- there's never a time when the, cr- when the crash is over, you're like, man, I want that one instead of the one before, right? You always want the one before that was created orderly by a creator, an automaker that, that designed it, that put it together in the right way. You don't want the one that just exploded. Nobody wants that. So us as believers, we have to answer a question, right? 
What was before God? So what was before God? And our answer is what? Nothing. Nothing was before God because God has always existed. And we will admit we can't prove that. We have a lot of, uh, we have a great foundation. And I think the Bible does speak to that and proves that. But we admit that we have faith. And our faith is founded on a God who is consistent, on a God whose creation is orderly. When we read this we look, and we look out there, they merge perfectly. It looks like somebody probably designed that. Yes, because somebody did design that. It didn't just happen by chance. You know, why, why, why are there so many different animals that have these weird things that just don't make any survival sense? Why is a butterfly beautiful? Why? There's no, there's no survival mechanism for a lot of things. Different colors of different insects, there's not really survival. If anything else, that might make them worse. But yet, God is a God of beauty. He's a God who is creator. We see a planet that is the exact distance from the sun, right? So we, we have the planets. It's kind of hard to see here. Earth is right there. If we were any closer, we were Venus, it would be 800 degrees. V- Venus, you melt like a marshmallow. Or if we're a little bit further away, we're like Mars. Well, now we're an ice cube and we can't live and take it to the next level, even the axis of our earth, how our earth spins at a 23.5 degree pole, it would completely wipe out a lot of our, a lot of life if it just went back up like this. Why are we set at 23.5? How is, how did that just happen from an explosion that we're set a certain axis? Why? Because God is our creator. Jesus is the creator God. He created everything. And as we see in, in, in verse 17 again, he holds all things, sorry, he holds all things together. And we see this echoed again. Hebrews and Colossians have a lot of overlap here. If we go to uh, Hebrews 1-3, we see that Jesus Christ is the fastener that holds all things together. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint. So let's take that image to the next level. The exact imprint. He is God uh, of his nature, and he upholds the universe by what? The word of his power. So the author of Hebrews has just echoed verse 15 that we saw, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint. And now we've seen that he echoes the words of Colossians 1, 17, that he holds everything together. And we see that he tells us how he does that. He does it by the word of his power. How did God create everything? By his word. So the same word that created everything is the same word that holds it all together. He never tires. He never, he never wears out of holding things together. His word never, never ends, never ceases. Right? All the forces that we take for granted, such as gravity, everything like that, all, the, all these forces take for granted, he's holding them all together. He's holding the atmospheric pressure at the exact same that keeps our lungs from exploding. He's holding gravity at 9.8 meters per second squared so that we don't fly off into space and blow up. We just take those things for granted, but that is our God. He is holding it all together. In his book, The Adam Speaks, D. Lee's Chestnut describes this amazing power of Christ holding things together. So so bear with me and listen as I read this. This is pretty deep, so make sure your mind's ready. So consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks in utter amazement at the pattern he has now drawn of the oxygen nucleus. That's what we breathe, right? Also part of water. For here are eight positively charged protons closely associated together with the confines, within the confines of this tiny nucleus. With them are eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles. Eight are positively charged and eight have no charge. 
earlier physicists had discovered that the like charges of electricity and magnetic, repul magnetic poles repel one another, like plus and plus, send, send them away. Two sides of a magnet will, will, will repel, repel, and the other side of the magnets will go together, or if they are opposite, right? So this is called Coulomb's law of electrostatic force and the law of magnetism. So what was wrong when the nuclear physicists looked at this model, and it's what they saw under an electron microscope? Why didn't it fly apart? When you look, we see what? We see eight positively charged protons in the nucleus along with, neg with, uh, with a ne neutral charge. Neutral doesn't have any charge. What we know is positives go away from each other. But here we see them hold together. And we see these electrons. And we know that the electrons aren't pushing the positives in because they just ding off all the time. They're moving around. They don't really have a lot of power. So the question is, why are those held together? What we found is a nuclear bomb is when you disrupt that. You get enough power when you bust up an atom to destroy a city. Like there is so much power that is holding those protons together that it can destroy our known world if multiple of these would happen. That's why you see this huge you know, nuclear bomb things, and they're like, hey, you know, dis disarming certain nations from having nuclear bombs. It's because it's enough power to destroy us all if we harness that power. So scientists looked at this, and they were like, well, what, what's going on here? Like, so we have these, these protons, these neutrons. Neg uh, neutral charge doesn't do anything. They're just kind of sitting there. So why is there a force holding this together? And our scientists, being the, the very smart people that they are, came up with a, a term for it called the strong force. Sounds like something off Darth Vader Star Wars. So it's the strong force. So we had, we've had, you know, our, we, our scientists are very bright. They come up with great terms like the Big Bang and now the strong force. And so I'm just glad that we're, you know, we're sounding smart today. So this strong force, it is so strong that it is ten, six times 10 to the 39th, meaning a one with 39 zeros, more powerful than gravity. And has anybody fallen in the last couple weeks? Gravity is very effective. It hurts really bad when you fall. So gravity is a pretty strong force. But this strong force is so much stronger that it holds these together. And, and what they've studied is it's actually still 137 times more strong than the positive-negative charge force, which is why that those, those, ad, like those, those neutrons and protons hold together. But what they haven't figured out is why. They have no idea why that these positively charged protons are that attractive to their, that when you throw another proton and you bust that up, why it creates a nuclear bomb or nuclear power, as we've seen in local politics. It, it, that, that is how they make nuclear fission or, or exploding there. You can harness it for good as well as evil. But we, but we know why. What, who, who is behind the strong force? Who is the strong force? Jesus Christ, right? He holds everything together even atoms. He holds the nucleus of an atom together so that it doesn't explode. It doesn't go everywhere. He holds molecules together. He is the great fastener. He holds us on the earth by gravity. He holds us at the exact right distance from the sun as the earth. He holds all of this and all of us together. And this great fastener not only holds you together, but he offers the free gift of salvation which forever will fasten you to the Father. He is the great fastener who has come and taken what is 
wretched, which is us. And he has washed us clean by the blood that he spilled for us. And he now fastens us to the Father as our intercessor, our interceder. We now are able to fellowship with the Father, and he desires that with you, my friends. He is the great fastener. There is no one better, no one more holy, no one more almighty than Jesus Christ. We're going to have three more points next week to go into this, but let's just kind of review what we've talked about today. So today we have seen we can envision, envision the invisible through, number one, the firstborn. He is the preeminent who is above all, the founder, the cornerstone of creation. All of this was his idea. He didn't ask anybody for counsel. He knew it all. And lastly, the fastener, the one who holds everything together and the one who offers to hold you to the, to the Father to cleanse you of your sins, if only you were repent and turn from those. And if you have, man, just, just appreciate the fastener that holds you to the Father, the strong force that continues to go after you every time you blow it. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your substitutionary atonement, your death on the cross. If there be anybody here who has not experienced that fastening, that holding on, that putting toward the Father, that bridging to the Father, God. I pray that they humble themselves, they repent of their sins, and they turn to you for salvation, Lord Jesus. Lord God, I pray that you cleanse us of our, of our sin, Lord. It, those of us who are believers, help us to, to turn to you each and every time that we struggle. May you be the center and the cornerstone of our lives, God. Help us to understand you on a more and more deep level and just get more and more excited about your word and about just the relevance and the truth, Lord Jesus. Thank you that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. Thank you that it does correct us, teach us, rebuke us. Lord God, correct us. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. Amen. Have a blessed week.